This B-Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. Loved and trusted by more than 1 million teachers, IXL enhances your teaching and takes work off your plate so you can make an even bigger impact on your students. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable, real-time insights. Strengthen daily instruction, close knowledge gaps quickly, and set every student up for success. Want to bring IXL to your school? Learn more at IXL.com B-E. That's IXL.com B-E. We are proud to partner with MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Students can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, wind time, activity periods, RTI, counselor and teacher appointments, and so much more. Even my favorite, Synergy Time. And with its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, my flex learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash B-E. Hi, folks. Welcome to the Cybertraps podcast. I'm Jethro Jones, host of the podcast Transformative Principle and author of the book, School X, How to Redesign Your School for the People Right in Front of You. Greetings. I'm Frederick Lane, an author, attorney, and educational consultant based in New York. I'm the author of 10 books, including most recently, Cybertraps for Educators 2.0, Raising Cyberethical Kids, and Cybertraps for Expecting Moms and Dads. Jethro and I are teaming up to bring timely, entertaining, and useful information to teachers, parents, and others about the risks arising from the use and misuse of digital devices. Over the coming weeks and months, we'll be talking to some of the nation's leading experts in the fields of education, parenting, sociology, cyber safety, and probably some other areas as well. Join us as we look to, at what it takes to better navigate an increasingly high-tech world. Good afternoon, Jethro. Good afternoon. I am excited for our podcast today, Fred. I'm looking forward to it. Who do we have? We have Charles Logan, and he is a doctoral student in the Learning Sciences program at Northwestern University. He previously worked as the educational technologist in the College of Education and Human Ecology at The Ohio State University, and prior to entering higher education, he taught high school English for nine years. He's a father of two, and he spends a good deal of time building elaborate forts and instilling a love of the Chicago Cubs. Well, we all have our flaws. You can find him on Twitter at Charles W. Logan. Charles, welcome to the Cybertraps podcast. Thank you. To start off with some no love for my Cubs, that hurts. But yeah, you know, I'll have to I'll have to look past that. We are three-time World Series champions at this point. So, um, as well, as a Boston Red Sox fan, you're welcome for Theo Epstein. Yeah. Hey, you know he helped. He helped. He's out. Of, he, he's gone now. But you know. He got us to where we needed to be, broke the curse. That's all that matters. Yep. Same here. Yeah. And I am just not a baseball fan, played it, and I just can never bring myself to watch it. If there's a live game, I'd be happy to go with somebody and hang out, but that's probably still a few years in the future at this point. So we're excited to have Charles today because he wrote a an article this fall in uh, the Digital Pedagogy 
magazine. I don't remember what it was called now that I hybrid now that I'm on <laughs> hybrid the spot. pedagogy is the name of it. Yeah. Hybrid pedagogy. My apologies to everyone involved with that. But that is at hybridpedagogy.org. And his article was called Refusal Partnership Encountering Educational Technologies Harms. And I'm really excited to talk with you about this topic today because especially during the pandemic, we have been in a race to adopt policies, procedures, technologies to enable us to continue to do some sort of schooling. And I fear that we have not paid attention to the harms and dangers associated with that. So can you start just by telling us a little bit about countering educational technologies harms and what inspired you to, to write this piece? And, and we'll talk more about it, sure. But what's your approach coming into this? I guess one thing I would note is that I think while the pandemic has accelerated the feeling that these technologies need to be adopted, that the technologies are around before COVID-19. And so the piece actually arose out of my experience first supporting and then refusing to support an online proctoring technology that the university I was working at the time was using. So I would say that that's one thing to just to, to note that these technologies do predate COVID, but I think COVID right, has accelerated their use or the feeling as if we need to shift everything we've been doing in our in-person classes online. As you mentioned in the intro, I was a high school English teacher, and I think for a long time, a new technology would come out or I would be made aware of another technology that was in use. I very uncritically was like, this sounds great. Let's, let's do it without really having a set of questions to ask about whether I should do it. How would my decision be impacting both me, but most importantly, my students and the kinds of data that the app or whatever it happened to be would be gathered. You ask a ninth grader to, you know, open up their computer and sign into this thing. For the most part, they're going to do it, at least in my experience. I mean, some, some might have some resistance to it. But as I've developed as an educator and really thought about my own kind of technology literacies and the questions that are important to me to consider, that are also, I think, very much intertwined with my pedagogy, my own kind of development of, of my critical consciousness to, to use some Paulo Freire language um, has really made me see the ways in which technology is, uh, or can be, I should say, not all technology um, is uh, based on pedagogies of control, of coercion, um, that sort of manifest and, and re-entrench oppressive hierarchies, things like that. So it, it, it's been a while. I mean, it took me, it took me about a decade to get to that point um, of at least having some of the questions to, to consider and ask to guide my thinking and then um, to feel confident that uh, I can act on that. So I think it's, you know, one thing to raise the concerns privately <laughs> or, you know, amongst a few colleagues. But I think the real challenge for educators is, um, and those who work with, with you know, students too, in, in all sorts of ways. I mean, I use the word teacher pretty broadly. I was an educational technologist after being a classroom teacher. And uh, you know, I think educational technologists and, and instructional designers and library staff, everyone is a teacher, you know, um, to think about how, how do you then act? Um, and particularly if you occupy a position of power and privilege how do you use that power and privilege on behalf of those who are less powerful or, or do not you know, have those sort of intersections of, of power and privilege? So 
it's been a long time, but, but it, it ultimately sort of culminated in this past year, really year and a half where, um, online proctoring in particular has really um, become a very lucrative business. But it's also a very, I would argue, <laughs> pernicious, racist, ableist technology. Um, and so I think um, people need to know that. And then people who are able to, and in whatever way, shape or form, need to need to resist that technology. It seems to me, Charles, like you're on a, a really uh, both important and, and challenging journey. You know, in, in number one, in trying to understand what the impact of technology can be, but then also, I think, addressing the uptake of technology in schools. And I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on that point, because um, as I mentioned in our, our preliminary conversation, I spent 10 years on the Burlington, Vermont School Board, and, you know, a chunk of that time was on our technology subcommittee. So I got kind of a hands-on look at how technology winds up in the classroom. And I'd like to hear your thoughts on the relative balance between, uh, or among, I should say, economics and um, vendor pressure and, um, you know, uh, issues of a economy. I think the control point is really important. Where, what's your sense of, of how these factors play into each other and related to that, what can educators and parents do if they have concerns about some of the technology that's being embraced. Yeah, I, I mean, I would start with um, the uh, assertion that any claim that a vendor makes about their technology should immediately be doubted. So if a vendor says that their facial recognition <laughs> technology uh, you know, is unbiased, or their, uh, you know, their algorithm is objective. It's not true, in my opinion, and the opinion of many people who I respect a lot. So, you know, educational technology companies, many of them, they are businesses, and they're selling products. Some of them employ former teachers, and they point that out, and they sort of elevate the, the role that educators play. Um, but at the end of the day, they want you to buy their product, and they don't really care, <laughs> I would say, um, you know, how it impacts students. And so I would look very carefully at the narratives that these technology companies use to sell their products. Um, claims about objectivity, about being unbiased, about, um, you know, in the world of academic integrity, um, you know, pushing this. If you don't use our products, somehow the degree your students earn are not, you know, is, is somehow in question, the integrity of it, its value. So you hear a lot of language around um, what I would argue sort of a neoliberal approach to education, that it's not about, um, you know, helping our students, you know, realize, themselves and, and push themselves as, as um, sort of intellectual, creative, um, compassionate human beings. It's how can we get them ready for the workplace, you know, 21st century skills and all of these things. So I, I would immediately be very skeptical about any kind of claims that the technology companies make. I would also think about, you know, a lot of, in my experience, um, which, um, I will admit it's not vast, but you know, when I was working at the previous university, I was part of a committee looking at different video conferencing tools that we should 
the university should should you know sign a contract for. Um, and a lot of the questions centered around issues of privacy, which I think are absolutely important and essential. Um, but I also think um, there should be questions around ethics um, about should we do this? What kind of um, relationship does this technology create between um, teachers and students? Um, does it frame students as adversaries not to be trusted? And they then have to submit their paper to a plagiarism software company that is then going to determine the accuracy of, you know, uh, the truthfulness of their, of their intellectual property, which is then, you know, sold back to the, the school. As a sort of third point, I guess, to thinking about how decisions are made about whether um, technology should be adopted in a school is, is who's at that table making that decision. Because if it's just an administrator and, and a you know, person from the industry, um, or maybe there's like a, a small select committee of folks who are voluntold to, to be there, <laughs> um, then uh, you know, that's missing really important people, like the students themselves, right? So how often are students actually involved? And if they are involved, is it, is it performative? Is it, well, you were on the committee, but you didn't have a vote. Um, and we, you know, we thank you for sharing your opinion, but we have sort of entered into this conversation, you know, with our kind of preconceived idea about where we want to go with this. Our parents involved, you know, there was um, a letter just this, this morning, I was looking at Twitter, um, of more than 2000 parents signed um, an open letter to uh, uh a, a publishing company. I don't know if I can name names on this on this podcast, but um, a publishing company and their partnership with uh, a, an online proctoring company, saying that you know um, this online proctoring um, company is invasive um, and it's surveillance and it's uh, you know based on algorithms that have a documented history of racism and ableism and so so I think you know it's often about I think schools taking seriously the, uh, the principles upon which they're, they're built and in which they claim in their you know, uh, mission statements, right? If you care about students, <laughs> then they need to be involved. If you care about the, the school community, um, then they need, folks need to be involved in, in decision-makings that are gonna impact students. Um, and so I think all of those things, if we're doing all of those, then I think that's a pretty good, pretty good start. Yeah. So I want to address a couple of things that you mentioned. One of those is privacy. And just to set the stage for how far this pendulum has swung in the early 2000s, I was um, a, uh, an English teacher, high school and middle school. And I was um, working with kids on starting to blog and I was not allowed to have them blog on the open internet as in on blogger or WordPress or something like that. Um, because people would be able to find them and then they could be abducted or whatever. And so now we're swinging all the way to the other end where if a student is taking a test at home, they have to install uh, a software on their computer that can look around their, their bedroom, see if there's anything that could say that they are cheating um, and, and things like that, that are, that pendulum has just swung a tremendous amount. And it's, it's crazy to think how, how far that has gone. And then the second piece was about having people be involved in decisions. And um, I had a, uh, a assistant superintendent 
um, where I was in, in charge of a group of student council representatives and they would come together and they would seek to be involved and make decisions and things like that. And the assistant superintendent told me the way that these, these kids are complaining about not being involved, but the way they need to be involved is in the way we tell them to be involved was essentially what she was saying, which is join our committees, do work our way. Otherwise you don't have a voice. And I remember being totally taken aback by that approach and thinking that's not really involving them. And all that is, is saying we we're going to pretend like you have a voice, but really if you're not doing it exactly how we want, your voice is, is meaningless. And I just thought that that example of do it our way or else is, you know, there's no value in that at all. Since we're talking to an English teacher, I mean, it, it's utterly appropriate to talk about that literally being Orwellian, the idea that we're going to have these kids open up screens in their rooms so that they can be observed at any given moment. And, you know, Charles, it, part of my writing is on cyber traps for educators, and, you know, kind of the trouble that folks can get into. And there was a case that I've written about a couple of times in Pennsylvania where um, actually an IT department, not to really throw stones, but the IT department had installed anti-theft software on laptops that were handed out because there was a one-to-one -one initiative in the school. And their quote unquote solution was that at any given time, they could turn on the webcam in the laptop and you know, find out where it was, if it had been stolen, was it down at, you know, like the local Chuck E. Cheese or whatever. And unfortunately, the IT department was treating that as like a soap opera. They would dial into different kids' rooms each morning when they got to work. And so, you know, I think that one of the things that I try to, to address in the work that I do is the unintended consequences of technology. And it sounds like you're touching on many of the same things as well. And I think that's an important point of, you know, some of this is unintended and then some of it is very much intended. Again, it comes down to, you know, what is your relationship with students and how are you conceiving of uh, that relationship? So if you think students are there to, you know, fall in line and be controlled and I'm, I do what I say, then you know, uh, spying on students through their laptops um, seems like a perfectly fine thing to do. And also to buy, to seek out technology that allows you to do that. You know, I, there, uh, makes me think too uh, of the ways in which schools are being sold, um, you know, essentially like NSA, I mean, it's not NSA level, but it's like, it, it's essentially, it's carceral technology. So it's technology that, that, um, prisons and police officers who used to break into phones um, in the name of, uh, of security. And so the ways in which a very real problem of you know, school shootings um, can be co-opted by technology companies to try to um, gin up fear and then have people purchase these, uh, these technologies rather than right, invest in the community itself, rather than hire more mental health um, professionals, rather than um, you know, do the sorts of things that I would argue are far more effective uh, than right, in the name of privacy, in the name of safety. Right? So many terrible things are done in the name of privacy. And um, I would just really hope that folks <laughs> listening to this um, 
you know, start to, to, to take a step back and think about, you know, again, I, I'm a, as an English teacher by training, like what are the narratives? What is, I mean, go to, I find it very helpful to actually go to these technology companies' websites and, and read their ad copy um, and think about what is the rhetoric they're using? How are, you know, what metaphors are, are they using? How do they really conceive of, of students, of, of teachers, of their mission? Um, and then push back against those that, uh, you know, are essentially, essentially right, militarizing these technologies and bringing them into schools in ways that are, are really harming students. Charles, I want to talk about that idea of intended consequences where the, the purpose, like you said, is to surveil or to be carceral. Is that the word you use, carceral? That's yeah. a new word for me. Thank you. Uh, to use carceral technology um, in, in a way that, that that's the whole point. And, and out of fear, many schools have made those types of decisions because they don't want a lawsuit in the future. They don't want harm to come to their students. And those are all well and good. So how do we make that decision when we know that that's, that's the intended consequences that they'll be surveilling on our students? How do we, how do we make the right choice in that regard? Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I guess I'm a firm believer that every context is different. Um, so I don't believe in sort of saying follow policy A or B and, and therefore, you know, that's the right thing to do. It, it goes to me, goes back to the people. Um, who are the people? What's the community? What's the history of the community? What does the leadership structure look like in the school? So if it's a predominantly black and brown student population and the school leadership is all white, right? That, that's problematic. Um, and so to think about, um, you know, the decision-making process as a truly, you know, democratic pro project that is going to be messy and ongoing, um, I think is, is important. Um, you know, it's, it's hard. I mean, I understand there, there are things to, you know, concerns to be balanced, to be balanced. And, you know, I, I know Fred, you maybe speak to this more than I can, but, you know, we live in a very litigious society. <laughs> People are happy to sue one another. Um, and so again, I think it comes down to that, that fear of being sued therefore, and companies playing up on that fear, they know. <laughs> I, I will say, Charles, I'm much happier writing about why people are so lawsuit happy rather than bringing the lawsuits themselves. Um, I have enormous amount of respect for my colleagues who, you know, particularly public defenders and so on and so forth. It's, it's brutal work. But I think your point is well taken, and it, it, it ties in nicely with what Jethro is saying, is that so much of educational technology seems fear-based now. And I think that that is a really unfortunate aspect of what we're facing. As a parent myself, and, and well, we all are, all three of us on this, on this call, you know, we all get it. We all get how we want the schools to be safe. But I think that one of the real concerns that I have and you know, we, we used to articulate this on the school board, is we can't have the school technology we're using reinforcing our fears as opposed to actually providing pedagogical value. Yeah, and I think, and you know, it, there's so many sort of ways to go about this, right? So then it's like, well, in, in teacher preparation programs, what are the sorts of conversations and ongoing support that teachers are receiving about using the open web, you know, Jethro, you talked about that earlier, you know, one of the things that is often, and I've done this too, of like, how do you come up with more authentic assessments? And this is maybe more in a, well, it, it's, I think, 
a K-12 question, but also, and I know it's a K-12 question. So if you're using online proctoring, for example, um, in a very sort of traditional multiple choice questions, um, you know, to make sure you're not cheating versus a much, you know, I would argue authentic, um, you know, uh, assessment that allows students to use the open web because none of us as adults for the most part are ever assessed by here, take this a hundred question, multiple choice. You know, we can't look something up on our phones or on a computer. Um, but that does raise the question of how folks are navigating, right. And how students are navigating the open web and, and things like that. Um, but I think to approach those as questions of possibility that rather than restriction or fear mongering um, is, is the way to go. Um, and I think once we start doing that, then the technologies become irrelevant because the, the assessments that, that students are taking, uh, you know, don't necessitate them. Um, but it also then becomes a question of how do we support teachers who don't have that, 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 pedagogy training, especially in, in, in higher ed, many of them, um, uh, in my experience, uh, don't, don't, you know, there's no, no requirement in graduate school that you learn how to be a teacher. Um, and, and so a lot of, you know, at Research One universities where the, your career is tied to how much you publish rather than, you know, how great of a teacher you are, there's not, there's not an incentive in place necessarily to really think about, yeah, you know, I'm going to really think about because it takes a long time to, to design a really effective um, assessment that, that might you know, make these technologies um, irrelevant. So there are, there are all these um, uh, you know, pieces to this puzzle. Yeah. And one of the things that I talked with my teachers about as a principal was if, if your students can cheat on the assessment, that is a design problem on your part as the one who created that assessment. And so the idea of of cheating as a whole, like that has this whole basis in the idea that there is one single right answer and one single right way to get there. And, and that's just not reality in the real world, that there are many different ways to do many different things. And we need to recognize that. And one of the things that you mentioned in the article that we referenced above um, was the idea of caring about students and making sure that that's something that is intentional on our part. And I think that's a, a key to this, that we need to care about students, not just care that they don't die, but care about them and their their futures, care about them on a, on a deeper level than just good or bad. You know, there's got to be more nuance to it than that. And we need to examine things at a deeper level to be able to make these decisions. What would you add about that idea of caring about students? Yeah, I think that's a, a great point. Um, you know, folks like Autumn Keynes have written about the weaponization of care. Um, and so I think there's a way in which the sort of language around care can be used against, uh, I mean, against teachers, parents, um, staff members um, in this sort of uh, really kind of pernicious way. Um, because you know, if you really cared about your student, if you really cared about your kid, you'd do this or you'd buy that or whatever it might be. And then you're like, well, of course I'm gonna do this thing because I, yes, I care, I care for my students, right? So there's this distinction between caring about and caring for. Um, and so I think when we care for students, we, we center them in their needs and their complex and changing needs um, and, and really trying to emphasize their, their humanity 
um, rather than, um, again, these sort of uh, uh, narratives around, you know, do this thing, buy this thing, if you care for your student, or if you care, for, again, about, you know, the specter of they're not going to have a job if they don't know how to code, right? Like, that, look, look to see who's pushing those narratives, right? Um, and then to see, does this really, is my kid even interested in, in coding, right? These coding book, like, you know, so that's another soapbox or another day. Well, it's, it's funny. We've been on a lot of soapboxes today, so that's really apt uh, description. Look, I, I think what we're, what we're talking around at this point is really the values that are brought to the table when these decisions are being made, right? And I think this idea of the weaponization of care is brilliant. It's a, it's a beautiful phrase because it calls up this idea of the militarization of the police, right? That we care for our communities by offloading weapons of war to, you know, podunk police department. And, and that, in a sense, invites certain behaviors just in reaction to it. And when I think about the kinds of pedagogical questions that you're raising, it seems to me that one of the values that is absent from the conversation, both actually amongst us right now and, and more broadly, is this idea of do we care for the society? That is to say, do we bring values of digital citizenship and kind of communal activity and empathy to the educational system in the sense that, you know, we, it seems to me that we build the kind of society we educate our kids to expect. And so if we're surveilling our kids and we're controlling our kids and so on and so forth, we are effectively teaching them that those behaviors are acceptable on a broader societal level. And that, that troubles me deeply because we should be teaching kids to be free thinkers, to be critical thinkers, to think outside the box, whether it's a bubble on a test or, you know, uh, you know, whatever their lunch is. I mean, just, it, I, I, I really am concerned that one of the efficiencies that's being driven by technology is, is cookie cutter students. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great point. And I think you know, use the word efficiencies there. And I think, again, that's part of it, right? Is that um, <laughs> free thinking and creativity are sort of antithetical to efficiency, right? And so again, thinking about the broader education landscape, right? If you are teaching in a school that uses high stakes testing, um, where teachers' livelihood are on the line, um, or you're, you know, going to be labeled a failing school, and that very you're going to have funding cut. Um, I mean, I get that you feel this tremendous pressure to try to let's march through this curriculum. Um, you know, let me make sure you're doing this by turning on, you know, your webcams, because um, there's just this enormous amount of pressure to achieve you know, to race to the top, right? To leave no child left behind um, that um, is really in, in not the student's interests, not in the teacher's interests. So, you know, I, and I don't know other fields as well, but I feel like in education, like you pull on one string and, you know, pretty soon the whole thing starts to unravel. But I think what that allows you to do is say, let me unravel this thing. And hey, everybody who's part of my community, let's build something else. Let's reject 
what, you know, the system that we have inherited and, and, and make something new. And um, <laughs> that takes a lot of will by people, by principles, especially I would think, you know, and I'll, I'll let Jethro speak to this, but like, you know, I, I don't have a sense of, of, you know, as a teacher, I had some autonomy in, in some classrooms more than others to sort of um, do what I wanted to do. And even that, right, is going to reflect the kind of pedagogy that I bring my own experiences, the way I've been socialized, uh, my expectations, um, my implicit biases. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I, the more I'm, the older I've gotten, the more experience I've had. I mean, it just seems like I'm not, I'm not ready to burn it all down, but like, I'm ready to, you know, kick a few uh, uh, holes in some walls. I, I love hearing you say that. And, you know, it, I feel like I'm a personal rebuttal to the argument that as you get older, you get more conservative because I feel very much like I've gone the other way. But I, I thought, I think that you might find it interesting that um, when I was on the Burlington School Board, one of the initiatives uh, that we undertook, because we were under the No Child Left Behind regime, if you will, um, was that we took two failing, quote unquote, failing schools, and we actually turned them into magnet schools. And one was a magnet school for the arts, and the other was a magnet school for sustainability. And it did make a significant difference in terms of the, um, the, the, the measured performance, if you will, of the students, I think is, is the best way to distinguish that because I think students perform in all different ways. But in any case, the, the demonstrable measurement improvements were good. But I look back on how difficult it was to make that kind of systemic change just in two little elementary schools in Burlington, Vermont you know, which you would think would inherently be sympathetic to the concept. And it was a heavy, heavy lift. It's challenging stuff. I, there are no easy answers. I'd love to hear where you think your work is taking you in terms of addressing some of this. Oh boy, I don't know. I, I got five more years after I had dissertation, but uh, <laughs> I guess I have some time to figure it out. It doesn't stop there, of course. Um, gosh. You know, um, I am more and more interested, you know, the, the piece focused on, on partnership um, and sort of moving away from uh, hierarchical relationships, relationships at least in higher ed, in staff, faculty positions that, you know, that relationship was often um, one of, my job on multiple times was framed to me as, uh, you know, doing some sort of like um, customer service. And so, uh, you know, as it right in the piece, like, I don't think there are, there are a few jobs that like bring such as like innate, like simmering rage <laughs> than like someone who's calling customer service with a problem. Um, and that's why I always try to be so patient with folks um, in, in whatever context, but especially customer service. And so, you know, moving away from that, that mindset to, to one of, you know, Partnership, a partnership that is deeply informed by the history of a place um, that, um, you know, uh, that understands the role of white supremacy and racism in this country um, and doesn't shy away from having those conversations, um, that is willing to, to have messy conversations um, and create brave spaces for folks. Um, so you know, the extent that that relates to um, technology, you know, I'll try to connect that, um, is to think about, 
you know, I used the word carceral technology before. I am more and more convinced that, you know, educational technology is, can be, or in some, um, certainly unequivocally in my mind is carceral technology. It's, it's, it's prison and police technology um, that is repackaged as educational technology. Um, and so thinking about what does it look like to abolish that technology in, um, in schools and communities um, to really work with students to lead that effort since they are the ones who are often um, the, the targets of that technology to work with teachers to understand how the technology works and the, the sort of ethical underpinnings of it. Um, even the notion of ethics itself, right? So the notion of like, well, maybe we could make there's a big push now and it's been around for a few years, but to make artificial intelligence ethical, right? And Google just fired its, you know, one of its preeminent black scholars in, in artificial intelligence for sort of calling it, calling out its poor diversity and equity and inclusion um, uh, and you know, for not publishing the paper that they retracted. Um, so, you know, it's people in power also just not this sort of, uh, performative, I care about these things. Um, you know, I care about diversity, equity, inclusion, but, but actually paying people and, uh, you know, investing in their, in the communities, um, so that, right. We think about what does liberatory education really look like, um, in a way that is sustainable. Um, and, and that touches again. It's about technology in some ways, but it, it also is just, again, it's, it's the institutions and the systems themselves in which people uh, find themselves. Yeah. So on that note, what I'm curious about is how, so if a, if a student is being subjected to the use of some sort of educational technology that they feel is violating their rights or violating their privacy or they don't like it. How does a student um, then start to refuse and be able to get out from the, the clutches of that technology? Is there a, a smart way to do it? I know you, you've talked a lot about power and how those who have the power are really the ones who have the, um, the impetus to refuse because they're the only ones who really can. But what advice do you have for those who, who may be the subject of that and what they can do? Yeah, that's a that's a hard question because I think the expectations. I mean, it, 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 if a student if a student feels as if or experiences a technology as invasive as surveillance, one they may not have the words for it. And I should step back and say, students care about privacy. I think that you know, I'll briefly step on a little soapbox to say. Students care about privacy. And I think that's often what you hear from these technology companies and others is like, you know, they, they put all this information out on Snapchat or on Instagram. They, they clearly don't care about, about privacy. Yes, they do. <laughs> right. So um, I, I would just say that. Um, listen to students, trust students. You know, Jesse Stommel is an educator who I, I just really have all the respect in the world for. And, you know, I think his forward pedagogy is, you know, um, start by trusting students, that's four words. Um, and, and so if a student comes to you and says, this thing just doesn't feel right to me, don't dismiss them, right? Um, and so there's only so much a student can do. Um, I would also think about what kind of environment are you creating where a student can come to you? Because I think it's an incredibly brave thing to do for a student 
to come to a teacher to say, you know, I've got a problem with this. Here's why. Um, you know, I'm thinking of college students, but, it, you know, thinking of like a fourth grader did that, you know, it, it, part of it is how their students are socialized to use technology. So I think, right, if, if everyone is using this very popular, you know, platform where you get points awarded to you in this very sort of like Skinner behaviorist approach to, to classroom management, even the word class, the phrase classroom management is problematic in my mind. But what kind of environment are the, are the students being socialized into to say, I'm skeptical of this thing. And my, and my skepticism is really valued in the school, in my classroom. And in the absence of that, right, it, it goes back to, to listen to students because um, nothing is more, well, one of the more demoralizing things for a student is to say, I'm, I'm taking this brave act. I'm gonna go to some, whether it's a parent or a teacher or administrator, staff member to say, this thing doesn't feel right to me, you know, Maybe they've done a little research on the web, depending on, you know, um, the way that they go about this. And certainly students, at least in higher ed, uh, particularly on issues with online proctoring, you see, you know, around the world at this point, students really um, voicing their opposition um, to listen to, to students. Because as I said, I, you know, that, that is a courageous thing to do um, and, not, and not to dismiss them, to believe them. And then, and then, Research yourself, because I think sometimes, you know, there's so many things that a teacher or a parent or administrator has to keep track of. And so much of it, it's just easier to say, oh, this technology company tells me that this is how it works. I can believe them, whatever. You know, the other schools in the district are doing that, whatever. Um, and so to, to not be the other schools in the district, right, to really um, prioritize and, and I know there's so, I, I, well, I don't know. I can only imagine how many priorities a principal has to, you know, decisions that a principal has to make any, any one day. I mean, I was a, as a, a teacher, the number of factors I was trying to balance in any one day, um, you know, in some ways that gets right into, if you plan professional development, what kind of professional development are you planning, right? Is it really worthwhile for your, your teachers? Do your teachers have a, a say in it? Like I said, all these things I think are like interconnected in this in this really important way that can't be oversimplified. Um, so to get back to your original <laughs> question, Jethro, um, what can students do? I think they can try to, I would encourage students to voice their concerns. And more importantly, I would um, you know, say to those who are working with students, listen to them, take them seriously. And if they are concerns, you know, do your homework and, uh, you know, as you would ask your students to do your homework um, and figure out, you know, what, what are the issues with this technology? And, and if you feel there are legitimate issues, and I think they are, um, think about how you can ch make a change. I'll just say this real quick. I think what I would add to what you said, Charles, is if you're a student, go find that teacher or professor or whoever who is going to listen to you because that person exists in your school. So go find that person and have this conversation with them because they do exist and we got to find them. Sorry, Fred, go ahead. <laughs> no apology required because, uh, you know, it's <laughs> many time zones involved here. Um, I'd like to follow up on what you just said, Jethro, because my advice to students, and I say this cautiously as a former school board member, <laughs> is that there is strength in numbers. So if there is something that you and your classmates are concerned about, or if there is something that you would like to organize your fellow students around, figure out how to do that. And it leads to my question to you, Charles, on this, which is to say that 
an argument I think can be made that students are savvier in some ways today than even 15 or 20 years ago because of the access to information they have and the resources that they have online. So I guess I'm curious how you think that will play out and will that shift the power balance a little bit in terms of how schools view students? I can only hope it does. You know, I, I, as you said, I think part of it is making an argument and being persuasive. And if I'm a student, I can say, you know, our school has just signed this contract with this online proctoring company for however many thousands of dollars. Um, and I go and I, you know, enter an internet search for other schools or and other students who are facing this. And I can point out to my teacher or my administrator or, or everybody um, to say, this is an issue. It's not an isolated issue. Hear how other students and schools are addressing it. I would like to begin this conversation. And I would like to be you know, a serious member of this conversation and not just thank you for bringing this to our attention. We're gonna form a committee around this now. We'll come up with a recommendation in two years time. And by that point, the student has forgotten, not probably not forgotten about it, uh, but has graduated or something like that. And with, with the message that, uh, you know, I can bring these issues to light and I can bring them up with people who might be able to do something about it. But if they ignore me or, you know, pretend to listen to me, then, um, right, the, the kind of like civic message I'm taking away from that is one that I think is ultimately pretty demoralizing. So I, I you know, I would say that I'm hopeful, you know, students, as you said, um, I think students have always been savvy and that their protests look different in different time periods and different contexts. But I'm hopeful that, um, yeah, when it comes to educational technology, that, that students are able to, in conjunction with um, teachers and, and administrators who care for them, uh, able to really make some change around these issues. Yeah, well, I want to thank you, Charles, for being part of the Cybertraps podcast. This was great. And as a reminder, you can connect with Charles on Twitter at Charles W. Logan. Excellent Thanks, stuff, Charles. Thank you. Well, that wraps up this episode of the Cybertraps podcast. In the coming weeks, we will continue our coverage of emerging trends in digital misconduct, cyber safety, cybersecurity, privacy, and the challenges of high-tech parenting. Along the way, we'll talk to our growing collection of interesting experts from, the, from a wide range of fields, including cyber safety, education, and practice. You can find the Cybertraps podcasts on all your favorite podcast apps, and we hope that you'll share the show with your friends and colleagues and reach out to us if you have questions or topic suggestions. We'll take those too. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Jethro Jones and Fred is at Cybertraps. You can also find us on Facebook at Transformative Principle and Cybertraps and on a variety of websites as well. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time. When added into your master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flexible time without all the headaches you get with it usually. Its intuitive design and SIS integration makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com be to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. 
That's myflexlearning.com slash BE. Do you want to save time on prep work, increase student achievement for all of your students, reliably meet tier one standards? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com slash B to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve these goals. That's IXL.com slash B-E.